Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today, we're talking with Rebecca about the death of her father, who was also her best friend. So, Rebecca, welcome to the Grief Stories podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Rebecca, can I ask you to begin by sharing your story of loss? Sure. So I'm going to talk to you today uh, about my father, who died when I was 32. So he was 59, which was quite young. Um, and my father was, he was my father, in which with all the relationships that people associate with fathers, but he was also uh, my closest friend. We were quite lucky to sort of come through my rocky teenage years and find when I was in my 20s that uh, as well as loving me because he was my dad, he also quite liked me Um, and would have even if he wasn't my father, which was a sort of special thing to discover. You know, until he died, I had never gone more than two or three days without phoning him. Even when I was in, you know, when I was living in Thailand and had to use a payphone. I'd never gone two or three days without calling him. I'd never made a decision without getting his input. I'd never, you know, we used to, he used to meet me around the world on, we'd line up our vacations and he'd meet me in different places. So um, the loss was the loss of a parent and also the loss of my, my closest friend. We, he was first diagnosed with cancer when I was in university. And he went into remission and it came back again when I was living in Thailand, uh, when I was in my 20s. But he had a bone marrow transplant and we really believed he was in the clear. Uh, we know there's con- we knew that there was consequences uh, to putting your body through that much. But we sort of, well, a combination of real genuine hope and denial pushing, you know, we've got to live in the moment. Uh, We thought we would probably get 20 or 25 years before we had to face those consequences, and we got eight. And he developed a blood condition where he could no longer create red or white blood cells. And while waiting to get healthy enough to be able to treat that condition, he got an infection, which, well, the third time around, we didn't get as lucky as we did the first two. So... um, He didn't make it through that, unfortunately, but he really, really, really wanted to. And he was not, he wasn't ready to go. And we weren't ready for him to go. We ended up, um, you know, I got on a flight in the middle of the, you know, the middle of the night, I got a call that said, it's time to come to Canada. It's time to get on a flight. And I was on a flight within 12 hours, being rushed straight from the airport to the hospital because we didn't know if he was going to make it through an emergency surgery. Uh, He did. And for a couple of weeks, we thought maybe he'd get to go home and have another year or two at home. You know, we were downgrading our expectations by the day. (laughs) You know, 
we went from we went from hoping we'd have another 10 or 15 years to hoping we'd have another one another one to having a couple of weeks within a couple of days he ended up we ended up together he made the decision of course he made the decision but we were a family and he he relied on us for support to make that decision we ended up having to talk about palliative care and making decisions to end treatment together which was surreal uh, he left behind my mom, which was a real romance. They were still very much in love. Uh, and she's been she's been grieving him very differently than I've been grieving him. So, I mean, it's a very difficult journey from having your best friend well and then facing a challenge and coming through it and then facing the challenge again and realizing it at some point that you're not going to be able to come through it. And the absence that your dad leaves is one of those big challenges because you were so close and in such contact every day that it really leaves uh, an absence that you feel. Um, and it was probably then a challenge too to be so far away and to have to uh, make all those arrangements to come back to Canada and be part of the process here. Um, so you have, there were quite a few challenges on that journey, um, aside yeah. from just the diagnosis itself. Yeah, actually, looking back, the diagnosis seems like the easy part. Of course, it mm. wasn't at the time. No, no, it wouldn't have been. It, each step is a challenge that kind of builds on the challenge before it, right? Each, each one feels like it's the worst thing that's ever happened until the next one comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the steps and, get a little higher in between. And each, each time you think it can't get worse than this, I can't take more than this, and then every time it turns out you can, mm -hmm. or you can't. Well, you do what you have to do, and you and you roll with the feelings through it. I think sometimes. In in for me, a lot of the time it was that I had to defer the feelings until I could. You know, there were times when there was a job that had to get done, and I didn't have the luxury of feeling the feelings until <laughs> long after the job had to get done. For example, <laughs> in the hospital was a really good example of that. He needed support. There were things that needed to be done. There were it, it became a almost like a list of chores I had to do and I had to shut off. I, you know, I couldn't fall on the floor. I couldn't be sad until much later. Right. So, I mean, in some ways that strength kicks in and you do what you have to do, getting through what's in front of you knowing that the feelings are just, you know, kind of being parked for the time being so you can do what your dad needs. Right. We were, um, I joke sometimes that denial is what gets me through the day, but it's only half a joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, denial is really a protective mechanism, right? It's what yeah. protects us from having too much pain at once to bear it. Right. And we, without denial, we couldn't have, con you know, a big part of my father being able to get on with the life for the eight years he got and make that eight years a really valuable eight years was denial mm -hmm. that of what might, of what might be looming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can set it aside, not think about it too much and carry on as if it's not there. And that gives you space to just enjoy what is. Exactly. And, and he really, one blessing in all of this is that not, we couldn't. We can't look back and think that any of us wasted that time that he had. Mm -hmm. You There's made no the most regret. of all the moments that you had. 
Right. And actually, once he had his bone marrow transplant, I think something like two two years later, my mother hit the retirement age and they went off and had adventures. They went and moved to Korea. They moved to China. They they decided, you know, not to wait. Beautiful. So they made the most really of every moment, every year yes. that they had. They embraced it. Yeah. 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 So you faced those challenges. You sort of pulled yourself through by doing what you had to do, whatever the next step was in front of you, whatever the next um, hard part was, you rose to the occasion, even though it may have been difficult. I heard you say sometimes, you know, that you didn't make it to the next thing. And sometimes that's what happens. It seems like in these very difficult circumstances, sometimes we stumble and that's a challenge too, to recover from a stumble when we're struggling with the grief that's coming to us uh, in advance of a death. Yeah, and and for me, those stumbles had to do with um, the other relationships that I needed to maintain. At, you know, other people who also needed my support, other relation, you know, other people who were also grieving. Um, a big part of uh, what I had to make sure I didn't do while we were in the midst of this terrible tragedy was lose the relationships of the people around me because I was too lost in my own grief or I was too angry and letting that anger spill out onto the wrong person. Uh-huh. So I knew that when we came through the other side, I would need those people and they would need me and we'd really regret it if we didn't still have each other. But, oh, there were days where I almost didn't. I'm sure there's days where I pushed people away and didn't support them the way they needed to be. And I'm sure there's people for whom there's been damage to the relationship that we might not get back. Yeah, well, it's so hard, so very hard to balance everybody's needs when that's happening. When you are walking on a path towards the end of life with someone, um, you have a focus and you know you have a limited time. You may not know how long you have, but you have that limited time. And so trying to balance the needs of the dying with the needs of the living can really put you in that place of feeling like you're not succeeding at meeting anybody's needs all the time. Sounds like that was one of the challenges that faced you was feeling like sometimes you didn't you didn't um, meet everybody's needs that that was relying on you. No, and those were the days when I the days I didn't meet everybody's needs or I wasn't the person I wanted to be were the days when I didn't when the wall around what I needed to do and how I was feeling when that eroded and I let the feelings in and I lost myself to the feelings instead of what needed to be done. Uh-huh. And of course, that's when what needed to be done didn't get done those days. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember, and, I, and those were not my finest moments. Yeah, and I think that it's inevitable to have moments that aren't your finest when you're losing a loved one. Some real you know? humiliation some days. You know, I remember, you know, I remember one of my biggest humiliations was I allowed myself to get into an argument with my partner who was wonderfully supportive on the phone. Not even so much an argument, but it was just all my emotions sort of piled out finally because he was a person who I could let that happen with. Uh And I forgot that I was still very much in a public space in a hospital. Uh And nurses had to come and say, "Uh, excuse me. (laughs) And that was, you know, there were some humiliating moments like that where I suddenly realized that I wasn't behaving at my finest or wasn't supportive of the people who needed to be supportive. I'm sure there's some family members who got very angry at me sometimes. Mm, Well, all of our emotions, I think, when we are walking 
through that experience of of someone's death, um, all our emotions are right near the surface often. And it's very easy to bump into each other, emotionally speaking, and have them spill over. Yeah. And so, and, and sometimes they're bubbling and hot. And when they spill on someone else, there's a lot of pain there. Um, that's kind of a side effect of trying to walk the person home who's dying. I think part of it too is that there's things where it was, and I say this only in retrospect, I certainly didn't have the clarity at the time, but there's things that it's a lot easier to get angry about. Those are safe things to get angry. It's a lot easier to get angry at somebody who's not supporting you when what you really want to get angry at is, or, or something completely unrelated, when what you really want to get angry at is the fact that your father's dying. Mm-hmm. But you end up yelling at somebody for something stupid and completely unrelated, and they don't know why, and neither do you. Yeah. yeah. And it's only in retrospect that you can say, ah, okay, it's because that's easier. It's a vehicle. Yeah. Something that you use to get the emotion out in a way that doesn't harm your dad, for example, um, in in his process. Although there were times I probably harmed him as well. Um, there were times I know that he was just desperate to be able to make me feel better. And there were times I probably didn't allow him to know that he had made me feel better or think he had and let him sit with that. It's so hard to manage all the emotions that roll through and to do it with dignity and grace because you're just human. And so those experiences, some days you handle better than other days. And that's that's just human nature. We're all were, built like that. There were days where I felt like dignity and grace were a luxury I couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They were, just, they were so far out of reach that they weren't even on the list. Survival was on the list. Getting through the day was on the list. You know, yeah, maybe a shower. Yeah, sometimes getting through the next five minutes. It's sometimes in, in those moments before death, sometimes they're walking through it one moment at a time. Yeah. Um, what have been some of the things that have helped you handle your grief, handle your thoughts about the experiences? What are you finding is helping you through? You know, sometimes I still don't really feel like anything's helping me through. Sometimes I still feel like I'm working with denial and letting through little bits only at a, a very small amounts at a time. It's mm-hmm. been two and a half years, so those drips are, there's like the drips that I let through are be- beginning to feel a little bit more manageable than they were a year ago or two years ago. Mm-hmm. Two years mm-hmm. ago, it was full denial. I had to build walls because anytime I let even a little bit through, I collapsed. I was done. I had to start listening to audiobooks on the way to work because otherwise I would be thinking about my dad on the way to work and I'd end up at work and I'd, I'd arrive at work uh, unable to work. Right. It was just too painful and overwhelming to do so, all of it at once or right. on your own. Right. So um, I, would, I would do things like listen to audiobooks so that my brain couldn't wander. Yeah. On the, um, so it's it's been helpful to have that kind of a distraction, the audiobooks are something that actually helps you cope because it allows you the space to not grieve when you need to set it aside. Right. And actually going back to work helped me. Um, it was very strange, actually. My father died on a... I was I was in Canada for five weeks, two of which were my school vacation. But I went early and I stayed two weeks late. Uh, my father and my mother were both worried that I was going to lose my job if I stayed too long, but that really, that took a back seat for me. I mean, mm. I'll never forget, I would never have gotten that time back in Canada with my yeah. father. Yeah. Um, 
but when I and I had a very as it happens I was never at risk of losing my job my school was incredibly supportive but actually throwing myself back into work my father died on a Friday and I went back to work on Tuesday and my my school was supportive in that you know they lightened my workload a little bit and I certainly wasn't at the top of my game I wouldn't have won any teacher of the year awards that year but Uh being at work and it distracted me it kept me busy for eight hours a day I didn't I wasn't Rebecca grieving daughter I was Miss Gulka teacher and that was normal back to normal that was my personality there still so at least for eight hours a day things the bottom wasn't falling out yeah you were able to follow your routine and do all the things that you did so well before they those skills and strengths were still there to carry you through that part of the day and that allowed you a little bit of a break for that eight hours from the power of the emotions that were feeling like they could overwhelm you if you didn't have those breaks or distractions like the audiobooks or the routines and the work in front of you to do each day. So my school actually probably would have given me another couple of weeks off if I had asked for it but I just I couldn't think what else I was going to do. I was just going to sit at home thinking And when it came, all I would have been doing, aside from anything else, all I would have been doing would have been kicking the ball further down the road. I still eventually would have to go back. Um, But I was very lucky in that I had a supportive, that only worked for me because I had a very supportive employer who let me sort of come in and not be 100, you know, they let, they were okay with having a teacher who is at 75 or 80% capacity. If I hadn't had such a supportive employer, that might not have worked out as well. And that kind of compassion is actually really um, the best kind of support because it it allows you to, you feel met where you are. Yes. You're not having to be where you're not in terms of, uh, you don't have to be 100% because there's an acknowledgement that you can't be. And there's an acceptance of your grief and your process and the fact that it will take time. Yep. And they said, look, if you're at 80%, we'll take your 80%. That's fine. They didn't say it's 100% or nothing. And yeah, and that, I mean, I'm, that really helped. But at the same time, there were, you know, I would come home at night and it would all, like, I was way more tired. Like it took more out of me than an eight hour day ever did before. And then I would also start questioning why everything, like, okay, so for that eight hours, I can pretend everything's normal. But of course, every day I realized everything was not and it would come crashing back. And there was a lot of the, um, it was very surreal. The whole thing was very surreal. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's getting better every it's every day. It's a little not I wouldn't say every day, but every so often, I realize that it's a little less weird, a little less surreal, a little less. I mean, it's never going to feel normal that my father's dead. But you're starting to adjust to the reality to begin to be able to accept this is the way. And even though it will never be okay, it will be what it is. Right. Um, One of the things though, some of the other things that I've been doing that really helped is to, um, I'm doing things that I know my father would want me to do. So one of the things that really got into my dad's head as he, he knew he only had a few days left, you know, it was one of those things where every day we wondered if today was the day. And he actually, he told me to leave Canada. I was not in Canada when he died. Okay. He couldn't, he got it into his head that if I was in, I had left my husband and my stepson in, in France. And they were being, my, my husband was being incredibly supportive. He knew what I needed to do. He gave me all the space I needed to. He said, stay in Canada as long as you need to. Your family needs you. You need them. But my father had it in his head that he knew that I wasn't, I would like to be with my husband when I was grieving. Mm-hmm. And he also, he thought that if I was in Canada when he died, that I wouldn't go back to France. 
and I would lose uh, the life I had built. Yeah. And so he couldn't, he was so worried, he couldn't let go. And find, one day I showed up at the hospital and, you know, he said, get out. He said, go home, you need to go home. And his friend drove me to the airport. Okay. And that night or the next morning, my, my time zones are, are fuzzy on this, but it was certainly very short. I didn't talk to him again after that. He didn't have the strength to be on the phone again after that. Okay. He had sent you back to your life and said, this is what you need to be doing. You, you went as he suggested, and then he was able to release. Yes. It was some, something like 36 hours, something stupidly short like that. Mm. But I'm, I'm blurry on exactly how, but powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's part of me that is grateful that he was able to do that, but there's also a big part of me that will always know that I, you know, there's all, there's, you know, for the rest of my life, I will not have been there for the rest of my life. I will have left the hospital. Yeah. And even though that was his wish, that's hard to carry. And that's sort of the, the pieces of your grief include this uh, uh, comfort that you were able to give him his wish and the pain that you couldn't be with him. Right, but there's also there's also the certain knowledge. My father was one of the least selfish people I've ever known. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be a question in my brain whether he did that because that's what he wanted, or he sacrificed having me there because he wanted me gone. He wanted me to have what I needed, mm-hmm. even if he preferred me to have been there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it's um it's something that many people wrestle with is. How do you meet the wishes of the person who's dying and how do you know what their motivation is and how do you assess what you can do in response? And you did the very best you could by responding to his, his uh, request that you go back to well, France. Well, to be fair, I wasn't, I wasn't given much of a choice. I was put in a car. Right. There you go. So you did what he said. You, he, you gave your dad that one more moment of, all right, I'm going to do what you're telling me, dad. Right? Well, right to the end, he was my father. And he was, yes. I was, I was 32 years old and he was still telling me what to, you know, he would still call me up and tell me to eat my broccoli and I'd be on the other side of the world eating my broccoli. So, right. yeah. So, so that, that ending part matched the whole relationship that you had with him, the closeness, his desire for you to be well and happy, um, and, um, and his desire to encourage you and, and, um, arrange it even when it comes to making sure you had a ride to the airport. Right. Yeah. And I know he wasn't alone. My mother was there with him and, and actually, as it happens, like that, that was their moment. Although then there's also some, some guilt there too, because I like you know, I'm, I, being an adult child is strange because my mother wants to be my mother. She wants to be the person who's supportive, not supported. Uh-huh. She wants to find that support from. So you know, there, that was a balance too. I felt bad that I had left my mother to carry that, but she didn't. At the same time, that meant that she wasn't taking care of me while she had to also take care of my father and herself. Yeah. And again, it's that word balance between all the needs that exist in a family, you know, and with other people that touch the family in the process of dying and in the process of living. And that balance is always the key. Uh, And sometimes it's elusive, that balance, trying to feel like you have got it right. Yes. And in some ways, maybe I wonder if 
part of it was that they sent me home so that somebody else could be taking care of me so that they could focus on taking care of each other. Mm, maybe so. And in that way, you actually were helping them too, even though you have mixed feelings about it. That's something that's very possible that was helpful to them to feel that you were looked after so they could just look after each other in those in those moments, right? There's, a, there's one other thing that I've done that has really helped. Um, it's a little unusual. Uh, I've taken up comedy since my father died. Okay. So my father always thought I should be a stand-up comedian. He always wanted me to write a book. That hasn't happened. Okay. Um, okay. But he also, every time I tell jokes around the table, he'd say, oh, geez, Rebecca, 10,000 comedians are out of work and you're telling jokes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he appreciated your sense of humor and he's probably part of what encouraged it with his own, sounds like. <laughs> well, the other thing was part of, like, he, he, we used humor to, I remember the two of us being the only two people giggling in a chemo room, you know, yeah. humor was a, a shield. Um, yes. As dark humor usually is, dark humor is a shield. It's a, it's, yeah. um, so he always wanted me to be a comedian and well, it turns out I just, you can just sign up for that. You can just do it. Right. It's not one of those elusive, you know, you can just sign up. So I, I did. And now that's my, that's what I do after work. I go around the bars in Paris and I tell jokes to people in bars sometimes. Hey. And, uh, and you do that and it actually is honoring your dad's memory and his love of humor, it sounds like. A little bit, yeah. I mean, so far it's, it's very unrelated. I haven't been able to use it to actually joke about my dad yet. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, that's, a, that's a big difference, you know, just being able to tell jokes and encourage laughter in people is quite different than joking about death, which is not unheard of. You know, uh, morbid humor helps us survive some pretty tragic events sometimes as humans, but it's different than just wanting to tell jokes and make people laugh and, and have that as a part of your life as you're healing from your right. loss. Yeah, and maybe someday I'll be able to tell, to tell jokes about my dad. Uh, maybe not even just his death, but just about him in general. Dad jokes. Mm-hmm. Not All yet. some of the funny stories of his life, right? You know, right? there's so there's so much love in those funny stories of our lives sometimes. But it that hasn't happened yet. But you know, the fact that I'm I'm finally doing it. There's a little bit of regret that I had, you know, that he never got to come to one of my shows. At least the shows exist now. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like the things that are helping you are really being able to think about. Um, the insights you have about your dad's motives and your mom's motives and your own motives, uh, really thinking about how supportive your uh, employer has been and your partner, and then sort of doing some things in your life, like bringing comedy to the front because that honors your dad's uh, memory, even though it's not about him, it's, it's an honor to him still to bring laughter in life, right? Um, And those are some of the things that have really been helping you move through your grief in your own way, in your own time. Yeah. And I've been really, really lucky to have, you know, a supportive partner, a supportive mom. My mom and I have gotten, I think, I don't know if she's going to hear this. I hope she agrees, but closer. I had a supportive employer. And I guess looking back now that I've come through a little bit, I'm not all the way out, but even the times when I felt incredibly alone. And even the times when I was angry about the fact that I felt alone, I felt betrayed and, and left. I never was. There was always somebody there who was ready to sort of pick me up off the ground. 
And sometimes when we're sort of taking inventory as we grieve after a death, we can notice that more than we could notice it in the moment that it was happening. Yeah. So there were a lot of apologies to people when I blamed them for not helping me. And it turned out they had been there all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> apologies. Well, a lot of apologies yeah. in the aftermath of coming through palliative care. Yeah. Well, it's, as I said before, it's a, high, a time of high emotions. Yeah. And uh, those emotions sometimes spill on the people around us, even when we love them lots. So, yeah. Um, and I think, too, that you mentioned, you know, you're not through it yet. And I think I often think of grief as something that we carry with us because it's about love. You know, you grieve for your dad because your love for him is so deep. And so that love is never going to go away. And so the grief will always be with you, too. But what you're doing is figuring out how to carry it with you. Right. You know? If I thought that getting through what I'm when I say getting through getting through the weeds, if I thought that that meant that I wasn't still carrying him, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be trying to get through. There was a long time when I actually, I think, resisted trying to feel better. I felt guilty when I felt better. I would notice myself laughing and then feel bad that I was laughing. Yeah. Um, I would notice myself making plans for the future and then feeling bad that I was doing that. Without him. Yeah, that's yeah. really common, right? Those feelings yeah. are so common. Um, uh, and I mean, he's my father. He, You know, I didn't lose a husband. I didn't lose a child. I lost a father. It is in the natural order of things to lose fathers. Uh-huh. So I wouldn't feel that guilty if I was making plans with my husband or making plans for my job or making plans for traveling in the future, but things that I would have expected him to be part of. Yeah. Making plans, like family plans. Plans, I would, I would, I'm planning a future for his grandson that he'll never meet. And those kind of plans I felt really, I didn't want to make them without him. I didn't want to be moving forward. I didn't want to acknowledge that that was a possibility. Uh-huh. Now I'm, I'm, if I think too hard about it, it still doesn't feel right that I'm doing that. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right that I can move forward. So I try not to think too hard about it. Uh-huh. You just, um, you know, you just breathe in the moment and do what you can and time and that, and that patience with yourself, compassion for yourself and it will help you move and in a way that helps you carry the grief a little more gently on your heart maybe yeah but if 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 i thought that getting through the weeds and by getting through the weeds i mean to the point where i can carry this and function and not feel terrible about it all the time not feel guilty <laughs> not feel like everything's weird and wrong uh-huh. right if i thought that getting through the weeds meant letting go of him i wouldn't be trying it wouldn't be worth it uh-huh. yeah it would not be worth it um, yeah. No. So, you know, I mean, you know, getting through means carrying him too. Yes. In a way, but in a way that, that hurts a little less and, and sort of shines in that love a little more. Yeah. I'm at the point now where I can look at pictures of him and smile instead of cry. I am though. I, I've started to forget what his voice sounds like and I have a recording of his voice on my phone, but I know I can't listen to that yet. Yeah. Well, it'll be there when you're ready. And I think, I think all of the things you're doing are helping you uh, hold space for his memory in a way that is beautiful and touching for you and um, carries him forward in all the parts of your life where he's important, which is really everywhere. Some days are better than others. <laughs> That's all, I, You know what? That's always true, isn't it? It's always true that some days are just better than others. And some days it's heavier with us. And it's interesting that the days I expect to be worse are not the days that are. Things like his birthday can pass without a blip. Mm-hmm. 
I expect I expect his birthday to be bad and it's not. And then there's other days where some some little thing happens that I have was not expecting, didn't think of, wouldn't have thought of. And that floors. Well, it's, yeah, grief is so unpredictable. And uh, that's one of the many challenges of it and trying to meet the challenges, um, holding compassion for yourself when it is unpredictable. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for sharing your story with us and talking with us about what has helped you manage this grief to this point where you've, you're at now. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's comforting to still talk about him. Yes. Yeah. That's a very much a part of bringing him forward and his legacy is being able to talk about him, share his story and your story of him. Yes. Yeah. So thank Beautiful. You for opportunity. I'm glad you were able to bring your dad to us today in this way. And it sounds like my window of no background noise might be finished. (laughs) And that happens. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.